Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. December the 2nd, 1805. A cold winter wind sweeps the rolling landscape between the town of Brno and the village of Austerlitz in what is today the Czech Republic. There's a blanket of morning fog that shrouds 68,000 men of Napoleon's Grande Armée. A bit of luck, perhaps a little by design. It provides the perfect cover for his troops who wait quietly in disciplined formations. Behind them lies the frozen ponds and the waters of the Goldbach stream. On a ridge to the east, the combined forces of the Russian and Austrian empires, a coalition of nearly 90,000 men, determined to crush France's nouveau emperor. They're an intimidating adversary. By this point, Napoleon's already made his name as a formidable commander, a great strategist. He's humiliated the Austrians Italy. He's invaded and occupied Egypt. And today, the 2nd December, is the anniversary of his coronation, the day on which he crowned himself in Paris, Emperor of the French. The battle that unfolded that day at Austerlitz saw Napoleon play his enemies like a game of chess. They attacked him right where he had intended, and he struck back with a devastating deliberation and overwhelming local superiority. By the end of the day, his enemies were in disarray, the field carpeted with the dead and dying, a mound of captured enemy standards thrown at the French emperor's feet. His outnumbered, footsore, hungry army a long way from home had won, and it's often thought to be his finest victory. This clash of empires on the fields of Austerlitz has etched Napoleon's name into the pantheon of military greats. I often find it hard to imagine great military commanders as children, but Napoleon was once a child, obviously. He was born on the French island of Corsica. He'd been bullied mercilessly at school by his peers, mostly for his poor French. 
His first language was Corsican and then Italian. But somehow that instilled in him a desire to be better, to outsmart, to win, to outthink and outfight his contemporaries. He clawed his way to the zenith of power with a sort of relentless determination and self-belief that few could fathom. You may have heard that there's a little movie coming out this week starring Joaquin Phoenix Napoleon, directed by one Ridley Scott. And we know that either before you go and see that or after, you're going to go to Wikipedia and dig further into Napoleon's life. Was he a genius? Or a tyrant? Did he really come from nothing and conquer everything? Did his love for Josephine embolden him or destroy him? Here on Dan Snow's History, we've done the hard work for you. Over the next four episodes, I'll be gathering some of the leading experts on Napoleon from his biographer, Andrew Roberts, military historian, Dr. Zach White, to sex historian, Dr. Kate Lister, to unravel Napoleon Bonaparte, the man, the myth, the commander. Most accounts of Napoleon's life begin with the siege of Toulon in 1793, when Napoleon was just 24. But if you think about it, by Waterloo, he was 46 and he was dead at 51. So the first 24 years before Toulon account for half of his entire existence on this planet. So in this first episode, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to look into those years. So I'm joined by the brilliant historian, the biographer, Andrew Roberts, Lord Andrew Roberts, author of Napoleon the Great, to go back to the early years of Napoleon. Andrew, great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. Great to be back on. Now, in the commercial, the advertisement for the Napoleon film, it said he came from nothing and conquered everything. Let's just park the conquering everything aside for a second. Where did Napoleon come from? How obscure was his birth actually? He was an actual aristocrat. He wouldn't have had the free education at the uh, expense of the king had he not been an aristocrat, had was called 16 quartering. So you were able to show your aristocracy back at least 250 years, which the Bonaparte family could. There was a little bit of uh, eliding once or twice, it, it strikes me. The Bonaparte, essentially, Corsica doesn't really have an aristocracy at the time of his birth. But nonetheless, uh, if anyone's an aristocrat, he comes from an impoverished aristocratic family. So it's not true to say that he came from nothing. And what is it to be Corsican in the French world of the 18th century? Extremely dangerous because Corsica doesn't become part of France until 1768 when they essentially buy it from Genoa. And so the year before Napoleon was born, Corsica wasn't even French. So the uh, identity, the national identity of Corsica is a very complex one. And it's one that can be seen in Napoleon himself, who is very conflicted about it. He doesn't really truly think of himself as French until he's in his early 20s, until the French Revolution. Because he flirts with sort of Corsican nationalism, doesn't he? He's rather proud of being Corsican. 
Well, his father um, was the secretary to Pascali Paoli, the great Corsican leader, the person who's considered the father of the Corsican nation, the person who gives the constitution to uh, Corsica. And so, yes, he's a fierce Corsican nationalist to the point that he writes short stories when he's in his teens about killing Frenchmen. So the idea that he eventually becomes emperor of the French is a kind of um, grand irony. And how would he have been referred to as a child? It, it would have sounded more Italian than the French. Um, yes, uh, Napoleone, <laughs> and of course Buonaparte. So it's a far cry from the Napoleon Bonaparte that we think of today. He spoke Italian as well as French and uh, a Corsican dialect too. So all in all, he was very much a sort of multinational figure. Is there something, I did a little flight of fancy here, is there something interesting, and I know he's not a sort of 20th century dictator, but it's, it's curious, isn't it? Stalin, Hitler, Napoleon, they all came from places very much outside the traditional imperial centre of the countries they or the empires they went on to dominate. Is there something going on there or am I being a bit too clever? No, I think so. And you can go back. I mean, uh, one thinks of Alexander the Great as a Greek, um, but of course he was Macedonian. And uh, there are lots of examples in the ancient world as well of this happening. Really, nationalism is so much a, a 19th century concept that we tend to push it back and to equate people in the past as having been one thing or another, whereas somebody like Napoleon would have thought of himself as several things until, of course, he becomes um, French at the time of the revolution and then never sees himself as anything other than French and gets angry with people who call him Corsican. Hmm. So he's only like many brothers and sisters, in an important local family, no overabundance of cash, any sign of genius at this point? What's going on in his childhood? Yes, there are lots of children. His father is um, a rather down-at-heel barrister, essentially, and um, charming, good-natured, good-looking, but not really much of a go-getter. Unlike his mother, um, Madame Mayer, who does push her husband and, and later Napoleon on in life. The family boasted that they never had to buy their own olive oil or bread. So they had enough olive trees and so on to be able to survive. You go around their house in Ajaccio in Corsica, which actually nowadays has an extra floor on it. So it's a bit grander than it was when Napoleon was born. But um, they were well-to-do. They had a, a house near the cathedral, which is where Napoleon's uncle Cardinal Fesch was Archbishop. And so, you know, they were a well-to-do family, but there was no sign that um, at all that uh, the young Napoleon was ever going to become an emperor. So in 1755, Corsica declared themselves Republic. Now, fascinatingly, I was reading Linda Colley's book the other day about written constitutions. <laughs> Corsica actually had one of the first written constitutions in the world. It was at the sort of forefront of the 18th century Enlightenment thinking around sort of setting out the principles of government. Uh, it didn't last though, did it? But his family were sort of quite intimately connected with that moment of independence and sovereignty. They were. And uh, actually the best historian of all of this is Boswell, 
James Boswell, who was a friend of Pasquale Paoli, who wrote this great Enlightenment constitution that you mentioned, uh, went around Corsica and writes a rather wonderful uh, book about it. It was published in 1768, the year before Napoleon was born. So we do have a good sense of what Corsica was like before Napoleon was born. Yes, it was a place of great pride in its constitution and its people. Of course, there was a dark side to it all. Um, the vendetta was a very powerful aspect aspect of Corsican politics in the mid-18th century. It was a uh, place that was almost impossible to govern because of the small villages in the mountainous regions that couldn't be got to. The French found it tremendously difficult to actually impose their control and will on Corsica. They could only really do it in the ports, but Ajaccio, where the Bonapartes grew up, was a port, and so that helped. On that note, I think it's so interesting how we, with our idea of the modern state, and we look at big maps, the Roman Empire and the French Empire and the British Empire, and we see these big, great swathes of blue and pink and red. There would have been great chunks of the planet still largely living beyond the state, I think, until quite recently. I think they probably still are. I mean, China being another example up until 1949, it was very much regionally you know, locally governed. And uh, there are lots of areas where the central state writ doesn't rule very far. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. There's more to come. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
but they feel French presence. They would experience sort of taxation, things like that. And in the end, Napoleon leaves his family by that stuff. When you think about it, his brothers and sisters, my goodness, the future crowned heads of Europe among them. Napoleon put them all on various thrones. But he ends up heading off to France to pursue a career as a military officer. How does that come about? Yes, because of his aristocratic background, he's allowed to have free education at the expense of the French state. And that is really the thing that makes Napoleon. He is a huge autodidact. Um, he goes to these uh, French military academies really from the age of uh, about nine to, I think, 17. And in that uh, long period away from his parents, and they didn't come to visit him either, his character was built. And he was a huge reader. He loved um, reading history, ancient history, biography, and so on. And he started to see himself as potentially at least one of the sort of great men and women who change history. Yeah, well, listen, that's very relatable. I felt that at age 13 as well. Um, but in some cases, I was wrong. Napoleon was right. Um, so so he's there, he's studying, he's reading ferociously, Alexander the Great, Caesar, a lot of classical authors, I, I take it. That's right, exactly, all of them. And actually some more modern authors, because of course these uh, military academies are, especially at the time that he was there, still smarting from the French defeat in the Seven Years' War, they have to try to inculcate in their students a sense of French greatness. And so they are also taught French history, or at least the most positive sides of French history. And also, of course, they read military books. And so he has got, for the time at least, a fairly wide education. It's not just Greek and Latin and so on. He also does mathematics, very important for an artillery officer, as you can imagine, and some of the natural sciences too. So, yeah, speaking of artillery, artillery was a branch of the 18th century military where you had to know what you were doing. It was in the British Army, you couldn't purchase rank. You know, it was a technical, scientific, more like being in the Navy, I suppose. Was he drawn to the artillery because of this learning he was doing, or was it because he wasn't sort of posh enough to go into one of the grander cavalry or infantry units? A bit of both. He wasn't posh enough, or at least he was posh enough, but they didn't have the money for it. You had to live a certain lifestyle that his father simply couldn't afford. That and his capacity for mathematics, which edged him towards the artillery anyway, because as you can imagine, the, um, the whole process of positioning a gun firing it, and then most importantly, firing the next round and to actually hit what you were originally attempting to, required a good deal of um, knowledge of trigonometry and so on. And he had that. And he turned out to be an extremely good artillery officer, as of course, he discovered later in so many battles. But he's also a romantic, as you've referred to. He's writing short stories and he goes on to write novels and things. So he's got an interesting mix. He's a rather capacious in his interest because he's writing novels about Corsican's killing Frenchmen, Corsica's place on his own within the great world historical outlook. How do you think he would have come across to his fellow students? Perhaps a little bit weird, the way in which he would totally compartmentalize his thoughts and life. And you see this all the way through his life. It's extraordinary how he was able to concentrate entirely on whatever he was doing and then turn immediately to something completely different. And uh, as I say, you get it later on where he's in the sort of burning ashes of the Moscow and he's writing the rules and regulations of a girls' school for Saint-Denis in 1812. There are so many examples of that. On the eve of the Battle of Austerlitz, he wrote the rules for the Comédie Française. To be able to, to stop thinking about one thing and think 
about something completely different was something that you see in Napoleon all through his life. And, uh, and he had that in his education and childhood as well. And the stuff he's writing is very strange. Some of it is, as you say, blood and thunder. And then, of course, there's a love story, um, a rather sort of erotic uh, semi-thriller he brings out. He writes about losing his virginity um, at one point to a, a prostitute in the Palais Royal. He's a very, very strange man, really, when he's in his 20s. Um, how does the French Revolution make him French, as you referred to earlier? So he's still thinking about Corsican nationalism quite a lot in his teens. And then, well, the French Revolution happens when he's about 20. Exactly, when he's 20. And he later said that if you can see what a 20-year-old thinks about the world, you'll understand his views for the rest of his life. And what Napoleon was thinking about was essentially dumping his Corsican background and his political beliefs, his nationalistic political beliefs, and totally understandable after a decade in France, being educated, you know, in the French uh, system. He thought of himself as a Frenchman. He thought of France as being at the forefront of um, the progressive views that uh, the Enlightenment showed. And he wanted to be um, involved in that, especially, although he despised the mob, always despised the mob. And one of the things about his success really was that he took the mob out of French politics from about 1795 through to the end of his career 20 years later. He was still in favour of the idea of the nation, the people. It's just that he actually despised the people when they acted in a chaotic fashion. Speaking of chaotic, I mean, he's involved in the sort of ferment of the French Revolution from the beginning. He goes back to Korsky, he seems to take a lot, bit of time off. He's got plenty of time to travel. And there is this sort of bizarre moment in Korsky, isn't it, where people are deciding between a vision of independence from France or embracing the ideals of the French Revolution and joining France. And Napoleon is in the middle of that. So he's, he's into politics already. That's right. And he, um, of course, one of the things about the French Revolution in terms of the French army, and he's by now an, an officer in the French army, is that it essentially decapitates, in many cases, literally, the whole upper officer corps of the French army. Suddenly, people who are in their 20s have an opportunity to leapfrog their senior officers and get into really important uh, positions. He was a lieutenant colonel of, it was only a uh, volunteers regiment, but nonetheless, he was still only in his early 20s when he was made a lieutenant colonel, which would have been very difficult for anyone outside the actual French aristocracy to have achieved, unless you have this entire wiping out of the senior um, part of the French officer corps by the revolution. We think his first battle is in Corsica, and it's a bit of a flop, is it? So he, he's playing street politics in Corsica. That's right. In Bonifacio, um, where he's stationed, there's an attack on uh, an island called Madalena, and uh, it fails. It's not his fault. He's not in charge. He's not in overall charge. But he does learn a few things about what not to do. I think it's a very important aspect. In early years, you see it with Wellington, of course, as well, don't you, with that... Uh, yeah, he said that's a quote from him, isn't it? In Holland, he said, well, I learned what not to do, which is something. Yes, absolutely. And, and it really is. 
So he starts off in this position where he is essentially trying to impose the will of France on his home island, which certainly doesn't want it, and which has the strength, because of the weakness of France during the revolution, to throw the French off the island. And that's what happens to him and his family. They're literally given uh, 24 hours to get off the island before and go to France. And then the house is sort of attacked by the mob and gutted and so on. So it's a very nerve-wracking situation for him in the summer of 1793. Does being thrown off Corsica end his dalliance with sort of Corsica full stop? I mean, he hardly ever goes back. I think Does he go back once or twice in his life? Goes back once on the way back from the Egyptian campaign, but just spends a couple of nights, doesn't stay long. Of course, with the rest of the family, however, he... he when uh, Corsica is retaken by the French in 1796, he orders um, his elder brother Joseph to rebuild the house and generally to sort of smarten the place up. In his will in 1821, he said that if his body was not going to be taken back to the side of the Seine, essentially Les Invalides, he'd like it to go to the Ajaccio Cathedral. But other than that, he doesn't spend any time thinking about Corsica really um, at all. He set his sights on far grander visions by then. The decision is sort of made for him. His family been thrown out of Corsica. He is fully committed to the French Revolution at this point. Let's take it up to Toulon, I suppose. So he's back in France. He's in the south of France. The geography of that is quite important because he is on hand, therefore, when there's the great crisis, when the royalists, the French sort of resistance, royal resistance with foreign allies, sees France's leading naval base at Toulon and Napoleon sort of nearby. He's in exactly the right place at the right time. This also, of course, is very useful for um, great historical figures, isn't it? So we see it again and again, to be at the key place at the right time. There's a great deal of luck involved. And he is put in charge of the artillery, not least because the last person who was in charge of the artillery at Toulon wasn't very good. And he immediately spots the key place called Ligolette, which has to be captured because if it is, it commands the inner harbour at Toulon. And it means that the French will be able to fire heated cannonballs down on the Royal Navy and the Neapolitan fleet and the rest of the coalition vessels and force them out into the outer harbour and ultimately into the Mediterranean. So there's this coup de l'oeil that he has at a key moment in uh, December 1793. It allows him to essentially win the struggle for Toulon, which is absolutely vital because it's the great naval base for the French Navy. You know, It was before and still is today. So that's fascinating. So only a few months after he's kicked out of Corsica, as you say, luck and, and timing and geographical positioning, essential. And also his politics can be trusted. You see, this is the whole thing about uh, why the Allies are in too long in the first place is because they're trying to encourage the royalists in southern France to rise up against the revolution. And um, Napoleon has proved that he's a sound revolutionary. He can be trusted politically because there's a lot of deep-seated worry. It's not paranoia because it's genuine worry that the people fighting for the French army uh, might change sides. Whereas this is a guy, he's lost everything. He's been kicked out of Corsica for his revolutionary ideals. I guess that's how it appears. And his best friend is Augustin Robespierre, who is the brother of Maximilian Robespierre. And he's writing pro-Jacobin stuff as well, including a book called The Supper at Beaucaire. Yes, he writes this funny pamphlet, this book, doesn't he, where he sort of talks 
it's a conversation he had when he was trying to win people over to the revolutionary cause and it gets published in Paris. Precisely. And so they know in Paris, they can trust this chap, even though he has got aristocratic um, background, he can be trusted. And all they need to do is to check out whether or not he's a very good artilleryman. And at Toulon, he proves that he is. And it's fascinating. I think this about Cromwell all the time. It's like gardening. You turn over the soil dramatically, or the gardening slash the First World War, and suddenly you get this amazing bloom of kind of wildflowers and seeds that have been exposed to the air. And There are Napoleons and Cromwells lurking around in every society, and 99.999% of them don't get their chance to turn into <laughs> dictators. But uh, you know, given the right tumult, the right conditions, one will emerge. It's fascinating. Yes, it is, isn't it? And it seems so often in history that the key thing is that what we should somehow manage to do is to find in democratic societies how we can find not dictators, clearly, but people who have capacity and genius and somehow bring them out without having to turn over all the um, the earth. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Lots of people of capacity and genius, evidently in public life at the moment. Uh, <laughs> Particularly in the second chamber of our legislature. That's right. Thank you, Dan. I agree. Um, <laughs> so we're going to do another podcast where we talk about the sort of myth and reality of Napoleon. How great should we call him? But thank you very much for coming on this one and talking about the background of this remarkable figure. Thank you. By the summer of 1793... Amidst the chaos of war and revolution, the young audacious artillery officer, Napoleon, stood ready on the cusp of greatness. And that cusp of greatness bit is the thing I find so fascinating. What really strikes me listening to Andrew was the remarkable sense of self-belief that drove Napoleon. That self-belief that allowed him to embrace the opportunities that were about to come his way as if they were preordained. Perhaps many of us feel that we were destined for greatness. But uh, few of us get the breaks. And even fewer of us have the talent to make good on those breaks when they do come our way. There's also one other thing that I keep thinking about with the young Bonaparte. He was clearly an isolated, troubled young man. He wasn't popular and charismatic. And yet when he came to command men, they loved him. He discovered a kind of charisma. They hurled themselves at enemy bayonets for him. It's a paradox. And perhaps we see it with other leaders now I think of it. The private awkwardness, but the public, strength, charisma, confidence. In the next episode of this podcast, we're going to look at Napoleon, the commander. We're going to delve into the battles that made his name, from his glorious victories in Italy, Austerlitz, and other places, to his crushing defeats in the Eastern Mediterranean. And of course, the final one, on those Belgian fields outside Waterloo. Get the next episode tomorrow, folks, by following Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout. <laughs>